There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome to the beginning of the week. And I mean, I have to say, it is a bit gloomy out there. Global warming would be most welcome on days like this. And I know uh, when people say, oh, but the thing is, it's not just about the warming, it's about the cooling, it's about the, uh, the terrible state that we have left ourselves in because of our reliance on fossil fuels. Well, there isn't really an alternative, one. Also, two... Are these people really absolutely convinced that the world is going to end? They seem to be. Let's ask Rod Little. Rod, a very good morning to you. Good morning, mate. How are you? Yeah, very well indeed. Uh, Somewhat amused by the weekend's extravagances of the Just Stop Oil Brigade, from gluing themselves to microphones to gluing themselves to roads to becoming hysterically um, upset that the world is actually going to end. And I was saying just a minute ago, I blame the educators and the people who have terrified these kids into believing that the world is actually going to end. Yeah, I think there is an element of that. Uh, and I think there's also an element that every generation thinks that it's the last generation, the special generation, the generation which is the worst or the best or is about to see annihilation. Every generation is the same. Um, uh, but this one is particularly indulged yeah. in its fantasies uh, and, uh, and, and particularly arrogant in its fantasies. It's as if we weren't aware that there's this thing called global warming. Yeah, uh, as if as if somehow this is this had totally escaped us that we weren't that we weren't aware that any of this was was uh, was happening that the scientists uh, had we are deaf to them all. Well, and of course nothing is further from the truth. Uh, it, it's it's typical of 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 a, of a kind of religious cult or a sect where they think that they are a bit like my mother-in-law, in fact, uh, who is a member of one of these things. Um, who, well, she's not running her own sect, is she? <laughs> yeah, she's got her own sect. It's, uh, uh, it makes you look. Uh, it makes you look like uh, Nick Clegg, mate. I'm telling you, uh, <laughs> it's 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 so far to the right. Yeah. Uh, but 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 no, it, it's it's people who think that they are in the sole possession of truth and everybody else isn't, and uh, it gives you a nice warm feeling to think that. And it's what I used to think when I was in the Socialist Workers Party when I was 15. Yes. But 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 that's the thing, I mean, it's an incredibly sort of adolescent view of the world, isn't it? I mean, you wrote a great piece at the weekend about this guy, Jack, um, who said that we should all cook um, fish in a tin of pineapple chunks, apparently. I mean, the world's gone kind of... I mean, why would you even say that seriously? The world has gone so mad, right, that I actually require... When when there was an outbreak of Asian avian flu and we were told that they'd actually locked down all the chickens, I did a little video where I said, why don't they just literally put masks on the chickens because that will solve the problem because then they can't pass avian flu. People thought I was serious. You know? 
yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I know, I know all about it. Uh, the Jack Monroe thing was hilarious. Save money by not turning on your grill by cooking uh, a fish uh, in the manner of a ceviche uh, <laughs> in, in pineapple chunks. And, and uh, of course, a pineapple chunks and cod would taste absolutely Fine. awful. Yeah. B, B, the the cost of turning your grill on. Uh, to, 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 to grill some cod for five minutes, say, is about a twentieth of the cost of buying a tin of pineapple chunks. Right. So it's, it's just it's just so stupid. Um, and everyone's screaming blue about it. I mean, I think there is a grave cost of living crisis, uh, and I think it's going to impinge particularly on the copers, you know, the, those people we used to refer to as just getting by. Yes, right. I think those are the people who are really going to cop it. Because to a greater or lesser degree, the, the the very impoverished tend to be looked out for by the welfare state. Yeah. Or they should be if my tax bills and it's Well also there seems to be more food banks that you can shake a stick at now. I mean I've always been slightly curious about food banks because I've always said if you put um, something up as a, a free um, giveaway, lots of people will turn up and get it. I'm not saying that there are not some people who, who need to use food banks, but I think an awful lot of people who go to food banks go there because they get free food. Yes, I'm sure. I'm sure that's the case. Uh, I did suggest in my, <clears throat> uh, satirically perhaps in my article at the weekend, that one of the ways of beating the uh, the cost of living crisis is to open your own food bank and siphon off all the good stuff. Um, <laughs> Particularly if you're living in a reasonably good area, right? If you're living in a good area, yeah, yeah, you keep all this, uh, the the OO flour to make your own linguine uh, and uh, you leave the you leave the watery tomatoes and the 30-piece spaghetti for the single mums. You know? Yes, exactly uh, right. That's... Well, I mean, I, I'd say to people, um, you have no idea about poverty until you've actually gone to places in Britain where there are properly poor people. And most people in London have no clue. I mean, I was up doing a show, believe it or not, um, uh, in, uh, in Newcastle, uh, but in a very poor part um, of Newcastle, Wall's End, where they actually had a Greg's outlet store because this was for people who couldn't afford to go to the normal Greg's because it was too expensive. Is that is that right? I, I didn't know that. I'm yeah. I'm only about uh, 28 miles from Newcastle now where I'm where yeah. I'm sitting. I must go and find that. I quite like the idea of a Greg's outlet yes. store. But I mean if you go uh, down that high street it's full of what you might call um, shall we say sort of um, superlatively bad food shops you know like Iceland, you know make iceland look like fort and masons you know that kind of thing and i mean <laughs> no, it's, right. it's horrendous and, and i felt so bad for the people there because they literally they're getting ripped off because they haven't got the opportunity probably to uh, uh to shop around because they haven't really got many shops that they can get around and it was the first time i'd seen for a long time in britain empty streets where there were terraced houses but no cars because nobody could afford one yeah no i, I think that's gonna i think that's gonna increase uh, i think People are beginning to realise that cars are a, are an enormous extravagance. Except, of course, they wouldn't be if it wasn't for the enormous amount that we give to the government. Quite wrongly, I think, on fuel duty. Yes. Uh, uh, you know, fuel duty is one of those things. It's thought of as a progressive tax, and in some ways, it is, in that it, it does keep cars off the road. Which is, if if that's what you want to do, that's what you want to do. Uh, so it works in that sense. But it also seems to me a case of theft. Um, and I'm not a libertarian at all. But along with stamp duty, which I think is also a case of theft. Yeah. You know, I mean, you know, we're not costing the government anything by moving a house. Right. 
it's, it's a loot. It's, it's, well, in fact, pure... if anything, we're giving them more money anyway because you're employing people to help you move. That's you're probably right. employing people to, to do things in the house, all of which has got VAT attached to it. They're all making money in the end. Yeah, no, that's right. That's right. Uh, and there are so many of these quiet thefts. The latest, of course, has come through national insurance. Uh, uh, I, I will never... It doesn't matter what I do in, in my in my dying years. I will never reclaim the amount that I've spent in national insurance, and nor will I suspect the vast majority of the population. We're looking after a rump of about fifteen percent, and yeah. we pay for everything they do. It really is extraordinary. I mean, that's the thing. We now sit supposedly with a Conservative government at the helm, having been in for the best part of ten years or more, maybe twelve years, if, depending if you count the opposition. Speaking of Nick Clegg, um, and you end up saying, "How how did we get to be the highest taxed nation uh, since the Second World War in Britain?" Yeah, well, well there's there's a, a three letter answer to that, isn't there? Which is NHS. Yes. Uh, I, I mean. If, if you look at the graph, which shows expenditure on defence and expenditure on uh, uh, health, um, they crossed over in something like 1968. Mm. And, and since then, um, health has just continued to rise and rises every year. And whatever we spend on the NHS will never be enough mm. because our expectations easily outstrip these days uh, what, what, what the service can do. Yeah. And it, it is absolutely clear when you look at the way the NHS performs against other health services in Europe that it isn't fit for purpose, that it's that it's no good. And yet it's become this this uh, this it's a kind of shrine uh, of which we fling money continually uh, in, in the hope and, and, and to pray that it will, will keep us fit. But mm. it doesn't. And it cannot. No. Uh, and it's about time that a proper Conservative government looked at it and started thinking up one or two alternatives. There's no question. I mean, we spent all of last week talking about the NHS because uh, it started off with a story from somebody, again, in, in your part of the world, um, whose son had attempted suicide. He couldn't get in to see him, despite the fact that he was in a coma, for more than one hour a day uh, on any given day and could only see one person. So when his mother arrived, she wasn't allowed in on the grounds that the father had already been in. And we had calls literally all week from people up and down the country saying we haven't been allowed to see our father. He's been in isolation for a month. They're still operating these kind of ridiculous COVID rules. In Scotland, you're not there. Nobody's allowed any visitors at all. It's extraordinary what's going on. It is. And, you, you know, then you get to uh, GPs where if you try to make an appointment, you're treated as if you're some kind of stalker or interloper. Uh, who should just shut up and go away. Right. Uh, it, it, it's, it's remarkable. And, and yet the, the, we, we still go out front, or some people do, on a Thursday evening to bang saucepans for the NHS. And it, it, it has become absurd. And we've got, to, we've got to wean ourselves off believing that this, this institution is the thing which has made Britain great. It yes. isn't. Well, uh, thing... It was great at the start, yeah. but not now. Well, it was, and that was a very different time. I mean, the irony of banging a saucepan for the NHS is that if you happen to bang your hand and break your thumb, you wouldn't be able to get in to see a doctor for about three weeks. You'd probably die of sepsis. Yeah, well, well, I, I managed to avoid it. I mean, I've got some uh, uh, Le Cruet <laughs> saucepans, and I, I just don't want them chipped. Exactly you know? right. I mean, surely you could be hiring somebody to clap for them, for you. Well, that's a good... Ukrainians. Yes, yeah, get some Ukrainians <laughs> to clap for the NHS. There you go. Job solved. <laughs> It's all done. Yes, that's right. <laughs> I mean, your piece in The Spectator 
which I can't believe you weren't cancelled for because you keep trying. You don't. You keep kind of pushing the, the envelope. You keep trying to get people to take you so seriously that they will eventually, um, you know, expunge you from modern society. Well, yeah, but but the thing, Mike, is I think I think I am moving gently towards a place beyond censorship. That uh, I mean. I, there, there were some complaints about it, but not many. Right. I mean, it was similarly to the piece I wrote for the Times this weekend, where I talked about ways which you really could be uh, the, 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 the cost of living crisis, such as you know stealing from food banks <laughs> and indeed defrauding the inland revenue. <laughs> <laughs> and there were some people who thought I was serious. You know, and someone went on and said, "This is just hate. This is hatred." Yes, hatred. But, yes. Well, it's not. It's satire. You know, I'm taking right. the mick. Right. Um, and I. I the, the the last piece I, I got into any real trouble for was 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 one which was picked up by that imbecile Owen Jones and a few other people, oh, yeah. uh, which was uh, according to him, and then according to Twitter, was me saying that the government should hold an election on a day when Muslims can't vote, <laughs> and all you would have needed to do, all you would have needed to do was to read the paragraph before I said that to know that I was joking because I said. We, they should also hold me on the day of an election. Uh, it is uh, the duty of all parents to drug their children right. uh, and to lock them in their rooms so that they can't go out and vote for the Labour Party <laughs> or for the Greens. Uh, so it, it's clearly a joke, and it was clearly satirising the government uh, uh, deliberating as to when to hold the election so as to maximise their majority, um, which I think is a pretty a low trick to do. Uh, and there was no suggestion whatsoever that we should really hold an election on a day when Muslims are banned from voting. <laughs> I mean, I don't think there is a day, you know, either. Well, I'm not sure that you'd be able to achieve that. But again, it just it sort of shows up, doesn't it, that, that, that there are loads of people in this country now who have completely and utterly lost their sense of perspective, their sense of humour, yeah. uh, their sense and of humor. irony, their sense of sarcasm, which is what we used to be brilliant at. Yeah, yeah, you, you can't do irony anymore. You, you cannot. Um, so I look forward to what people will make of my spectator column this week, uh, which suggests that gay conversion therapy shouldn't be banned, but should be compulsory. And I, I, I you know, I, I, there will be people with you that say homophobia and they will go mad and they will scream. It's satire. You know, that's what it's meant to be. Right. Right. I mean, maybe you should leave a big sign above it that just says, you know, this is warning. This is satire, you know, so yeah, that they can, yes, that's so right, can yeah, recognise yeah. it, you know. Yeah, I mean, no, absolutely. Mate. I mean, I've just seen a great tweet which has been put out by somebody from New York who's a, a guy called Rajat Suresh, um, who's just literally come through Kennedy Airport. Um, and there's a question air on the uh, on the screen in front of him. The question is, are you a terrorist? Yes or no? <laughs> That's superb. I mean, that's fantastic, you know. And that's where we've come to now. It's just that, well, we've got to give people the chance to answer the question honestly. Okay, then. Well, let's see how <laughs> yes, that goes, yes, shall we? <laughs> yes. I mean, the way it, the Liberals work, the, 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 the world of the, of the Liberal, which is very well-meaning, very well-intended, none of it adds up. Uh, it's just a collection of, of delusions and non-secretaires. And uh, I, I think that's the problem. It reminds uh, me... That's where it reminds me, and you'll know this from your days at Millwall, it reminds me of the way that people who know nothing about football and football supporters and what the whole tribal effect of it all is, uh, is they when they sort of like querulously ask, but why do they sing such horrible songs? 
you know, and I really wish they wouldn't. And of course you wish they wouldn't, but unfortunately they do. Yeah, I don't actually wish they wouldn't. I think it's quite funny. Uh, I rather enjoy the horrible songs. You know? um, I particularly like the, uh, uh, the someone uh, without without a single ounce of uh, intelligence uh, decided that a friendly between England and Iran should be uh, played at the New Den, Millwall's ground. This was going back to 2006. Right. And I can remember ringing the club and saying, please don't let this happen. Please don't let this happen. Right. Uh, but the Millwall fans had already come up with a bunch of chants for that song. And one of them was, you're Shiite and you know you are. Uh, and, and the other one, which I really liked, because it managed in, in I think, just seven words to be simultaneously <laughs> racist, sexist, and Islamophobic, right. uh, and which was to be directed at any Iranian female supporters, was get your face out for the lads. <laughs> which, uh, which, uh, <laughs> That's brilliant. It really is. Yeah. But, but, I mean, what about I mean, the, the po-faced uh, nature of, of football now with, with the international game, though? Uh, Gareth Southgate gave an interview the other week to say how dis- disappointed and dismayed he was that some... LGBTQI plus whatever um, fans might not be able to go to Qatar uh, and support the team. Um, failing both in his knowledge of um, this English sort of football supporting fraternity and also kind of completely missing the point about Qatar, really. Well, no, that that's the point, Mike, isn't it? That, that this man who's raised himself in piety for the last three years and particularly the last two years with this with perpetual knee-bending rubbish yeah. uh, doesn't really care it's all grandstanding and virtue signaling if he really cared he would not go to Qatar full stop end of story right. well, he, well he had a great uh, answer for that though he said there's no point in boycotting it because it would go ahead anyway I mean you know Martin, yeah, well, Martin Luther King he isn't <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that's exactly right I mean it's always the easy way out and you know the truth is I also think the knee bending and the, and the support for BLM, which is a loathsome organisation, mm. has actually damaged race relations of in this country quite badly. You know? No and question. I, I, uh, but it probably takes someone a bit brighter than Gareth Southgate to understand that. I, I just wish Gareth would manage a game properly uh, rather than, you know, throwing it away, which he does all too often. Yes. Uh, just concentrate on managing the game, mate. Yes. I mean, a bit like the political world in which we now live. We've got a Labour Party that can't define what a woman is. Uh, We've got a Tory MP uh, who's pictured himself in front of some lines of cocaine and a glass of scotch. Um, We've got Boris Johnson and the old party gate scenario. I mean, you do. it's no wonder the country is such a mess, really, is it? The thing which struck me most about um, that reincarnation of Alan Bastard, the Conservative (laughs) MP, which, which seems to could remember that Alan Bastard was based on fact, uh, was how sick are you if you have yourself photographed as an MP in front of five lines of coke? I mean, how dense can you be? I mean, yeah, it really it really is quite a sad story for him and his family, obviously. But I mean, but ridiculous. I, I suspect I, I suspect I suspect that quite a few of those Tories are on coke. I can't. I can't bear people who take cocaine. No, it's the worst drug ever. It's the worst drug. It's not just environmentally disastrous. It also turns people into arrogant tossers. And I'm already one of those. You know, I don't need that extra buzz. 
Well, most of them are as well, by the way. So they actually yeah, most of them are as well. Yes, turbocharged, absolute uh, tossers, as you say. But you know, what hopes do you have for the Boris Johnson brigade and their longevity? Because we're told they're going to get a pasting in May. I'm not sure it's going to make any difference, is it? Um, I suspect that the Boris will see a slight turn up in the polls shortly, largely because whilst I find him hugely irritating, incompetent, devious, and lying, he nonetheless does tend to get some of the big questions right. And I was he's done say, very just, well. That's just his qualities, isn't it? <laughs> that's right. But he's, he's done quite well on Ukraine. Um, he has, actually. Just as he's done quite well latterly on COVID and telling Sage to get lost. Mm. Uh, so, so, so those two things, I, I think we've emerged from COVID now. Um, I don't think many people care about Partygate, even though I do think, you know, uh, that the, the deception involved and the arrogance was an affront to, to people in this country. Yes. I mean, oh, know, I think it was. And, and I think there are still people who were badly affected by it, um, who did lose loved ones, who still do care. But you're probably right. The majority of people don't. Yeah, they've moved on. I mean, we have a limited attention span, as as, uh, as Ofsted was reporting earlier about those kids. Yes. Um, you know, we have a limited attention span. I think I think he won't do brilliantly in May. <clears throat> but I suspect it won't be anywhere near as bad as Keir Starmer is perhaps hoping. Um, what he's got to do, I mean, if you, you see him toing and froing on this issue of, of conversion therapy, <clears throat> the more the party attacks the wokeisms, uh, which are, uh, are running a mocking out society, the better he will do, particularly in those red wall seats which he won in 2019. And that means, you know, uh, a degree of patriotism, uh, a refusal to let uh, people with long dangling penises take place in, uh, take part in bicycle races for women. <laughs> you know, stuff like that. Uh, stuff well, like even that. Just if you just call you, well, isn't it all right just to call yourself Emily, though? Call yourself Emily, if you like. Yeah, I, I don't mind it. You know, I could call myself uh, Loretta. Uh, but uh, but it wouldn't enable me to take place part in a you know a cycle race for for women. It's it's just wrong. And every the, this is the thing about it that everybody except our elites knows that it's wrong. We know it's wrong, um, and so do an awful lot of trans. Yeah, totally. I think Rod has finally been frozen out. Uh, he said so many things that were possibly offensive that uh, he's been cut off. No, that's not true. That's not what we do here at all, really. We allow people to say these things. I don't think there's anything that he said uh, that could be in any way offensive. Uh, if you were offended by any of it, uh, well, bad, tough. Go for it. This is Talk Radio. Uh, Rod, are you back? I, I think I'm back. I don't know what happened. Then. I think there was this kind of invasion of the airways. I just said you must have finally been, you've become, you've, you've been so offensive for half an hour that you've been frozen out, but, but certainly not on, on this show. You're allowed to be as offensive as you like. Great to talk to you. Great to see you. Thank you very much indeed. Um, let us know when you're next in London and we'll take you down to the den uh, for some old times. This is, of course, Talk Radio. We'll have more coming up after the news. Listen online. Watch it live on your smart TV. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Talk Radio.
Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. Now available, of course, on your television as well. Apple TV, Rakuten, Samsung TV Plus, Roku, YouTube. Now we're also on Amazon Fire as well. Just go to the uh, talkradio.tv page or go uh, to the App Store and download the Talk Radio TV app. Don't forget, also Talk TV coming very, very soon as well. Later on this month, it's going to be very exciting times here uh, at Talk Radio Towers. Uh, we're going to be firing on all cylinders, all sorts of great things going on. Uh, now let's talk about Easter getaways because, of course, Easter holidays, if you're a parent, uh, are underway. Many people have decided it's actually cheaper to go away than it is to stay at home. Because uh, if you can find yourself a cheap sort of, uh, you know, all-inclusive place to go somewhere warm, uh, it will probably cost you less money than sitting at home trying to heat the house and trying to put petrol in your car. To be honest, let's talk to Ben Clapworthy, travel correspondent for the Times. A piece in the paper this morning saying Easter getaways hit by nine-hour queues at Dover. Ben, it's all a bit uh, familiar-sounding, isn't it? Oh, yes, it is, Mike. It's uh, Honestly, I, I use the word too often, but it is chaos out there uh, this morning for people trying to get away and has mm. been over over the weekend. Uh, easy jet flight cancellations this morning uh, because of COVID uh, sickness. British Airways have paired back their schedule already. They've got some additional cancellations. And at the Euro Tunnel, uh, that's the car passenger service between Folkestone and Calais, three hours delays because of uh, an overnight uh, issue in one of the tunnels. Uh, the Eurostar passenger service running relatively okay, but with half an hour to an hour long delays. And delays at Dover because of the ongoing P&O saga and the fact that two DFDS ferries are out of action as well. So all in all, for people trying to get away this Easter, it's difficult. It really is. I mean, let's start with the EasyJet problem. Is, is it people who are sick or is it people who are being told to go home because other people are sick? Because I thought we were sort of over all of that. No, this is people who uh, themselves are testing uh, positive or, or have fallen ill and not tested but are unable to work. Um, airlines across the board, though, have a general shortage of uh, cabin crew right. and staff at the moment. Um, they're trying to ramp up after two years of, of shutdown. Um, you know, they, they uh, are struggling to recruit staff fast enough. Part of the reason is because it's not like getting a job at your local pub. Mm. Uh, if you're going to be cabin crew, there's uh, a six weeks training course, there's vetting to be done. Uh, there's security implications as well. So it's not that simple. But for the airlines, uh, Easter, even though is very late this year, actually uh, has come too soon for them to be ready for the ramp up in the number of people wanting, understandably, to get away and have some sunshine. Yeah, because I guess for a lot of people, this will be the first opportunity properly that they've had to go somewhere reasonably warm as well, right? Because, you know, there was that February half term, but that's more difficult to find somewhere that's sunny enough to go and lie on a beach. Um, presumably as well, it's the first time a lot of people have had the chance to go without any restrictions for most of them. <laughs> Yes, absolutely. I mean, this is going to be this is the biggest bi biggest getaway period since before the pandemic. Mm. If we cast our minds back to April 20, uh, sorry, Easter 2020, we were in uh, the full height of that first uh, lockdown. Then um, this really is the first opportunity that most people have had to go away. And of course, it's that sort of sweet crossover point of where you can get to parts of Europe and get some pretty nice beach conditions or you can still get away and catch the end of the the last of the ski season um, so there's there's lots of opportunities to travel and prices generally are pretty good part of the reason is that people have been booking so late because they've been waiting to see what the restrictions are the risk for the airlines and the travel industry is that actually they're putting on such mm. a bad show 
this time round that people are going to say, oh, I'm not sure I want to yeah. travel this this summer. So actually, their lack of preparedness and their their issues that they have are potentially going to have a knock on in damaging consumer confidence for the third summer in a row. Right. Unless unless these airlines and airports get their act together. No, and I'm not joking when I say that for some families, bigger families particularly, it's actually cheaper to go away than it is to sit at home putting petrol in your car and paying for all the hot water and the heating that you need in this weather. Oh, undeniably. I mean, uh, Michael O'Leary uh, regularly telling us how cheap his Ryanair flights are at the moment. And it's true, they are they are cheap. Of course, those headline fares are not exactly uh, what you get once you've paid for luggage and so mm. on. But if you can get a really cheap holiday deal this Easter, particularly if you're looking out of your window this morning and it's grey, cold and miserable, yeah. uh, if you can get yourself to an airport without a huge amounts of associated cost parking and so on and get yourself away, then yeah, there are some brilliant bargains to be had and find yourself somewhere where uh, life is a lot easier and a lot cheaper. Yes, and we're looking currently as we speak, Ben, at some pictures from Heathrow, nine-hour queues, um, sorry, four, five-hour queues, I think, three, four, five-hour queues at Heathrow. What's that all about? Heathrow, again, they, they're suffering with a huge lack of staff, um, people complaining about um, uh, huge delays to check their bags in because there's not enough staff, people complaining that e-passport gates weren't working over the weekend. I say complaining, it makes them sound like they're moaning. <laughs> they're, they're, they're rightfully complaining, I should say, about the shoddy service. And the thing is, is when you go abroad and, you know, you know people, some of the people that I've spoken to in recent weeks that have been affected by this Manchester airport, East throw airports stand they say the thing is is that it's carnage coming both ways through the uk you get abroad there's no problems whatsoever there's the longest queue is that is now the queue for passports because there some airports are being a little bit um a little bit punishing in only opening one right. non-EU passport gate, uh, which you can understand. Uh, you can understand that that would wind people up. Um, but generally speaking, they say the big problem is is in the UK. It's mm. our airports are not up to capacity, and there's a myriad of reasons of why we don't have enough staff. But at yeah. the end of the day, it um, yeah, it, it all comes down ultimately to a lack of staff and a lack of preparedness for this big ramping up of the number of people wanting to get away. I mean, I must admit, it doesn't exactly encourage me to do anything in terms of travelling anywhere. I'm looking at a story also in uh, The Times this morning about British Airways charging extortionate prices for many Easter short-haul flights in an apparent attempt to discourage bookings. I mean, we've now reached a point where so much of this country doesn't work. We've now got an airline encouraging people not to fly. Well, yes. Huh? Um, I mean, I must, <laughs> I must admit, I haven't had the the right of reply back from BA on this. Uh, certainly, my colleagues last night saying that flights had been ramped up, uh, the price of flam- flights ramped up to discourage people from booking. Now, last night, some of those prices had started uh, to come back down, but certainly on the face of it, uh, the way the prices were, the flights were priced i.e. all of the departures, exactly the same extortionate amount, we're talking 400, 500 pounds for a short haul price, would probably defy the normal algorithms that airlines often hide behind you. We'll all have heard the excuses, you know, when, mm. when a football team gets through to um, a quarterfinal in Madrid, say, and suddenly all the prices shoot up, the yes. airlines say, well, that's just the algorithm, it's not us doing it. These prices look so 
markedly set that it looked as though what had happened is the airline's gone, look, let's just take stock a second, let's put the prices really high while we work out what's going on and then let's put them back down again. But as I say, we haven't heard officially what BA's uh, line is is on that, that no. at the moment. I mean, they're still recovering from that IT um, glitch. I mean, I say glitch, it was sort of a disaster they had about four days ago, wasn't it? Well, it was. Um, that caused, while their systems were only down for a couple of hours, it caused uh, widespread issues. There were disruption to flights taking off from around the world. Uh, at Heathrow Terminal 5, their hub, all planes had to stop being boarded because they couldn't work out who the passengers were. Um, I tweeted about this, and as one person uh, responded to me, which made me laugh, there seem to be three things that are guaranteed in life, death, taxes and IT failures at <laughs> British Airways. Yes, if they're uh, not losing your bag, they're losing your ticket, right? Which for Twitter humour was actually quite good and did make me uh, did make me laugh. Yes, I mean, more disturbingly than all of this, of course, is for people who've decided to stay home for Easter, uh, I heard an advert this morning on my way into work from... Uh, Network Rail, I think it was, saying, of course, there will be some disruption over the Easter weekend. Uh, please pay attention to the website to see where there are going to be problems. Most of the lines will be running, but guess what? It all runs from Good Friday to Easter Monday, suggesting to me, I'm afraid, that there are a lot of people who still work in the railway business who like to have Easter off. Well, well, Network Rail say that the reason they do the engineering works over Easter is because the overall passenger numbers are lower. It's the same that they say at, at Christmas. The... Uh, Surely they can't still pedal that now that so many people don't work on a Monday or a Friday and basically work from home for quite a lot of the time now. Well, exactly. You know that that is that is true. What they they say is that these period long periods of shutdown allow big projects to happen. Um, but I share your frustration. Um, I think it's all well and good uh, saying that Christmas and Easter are times when. Uh, people don't need to travel. But actually, uh, A, it's when most people want to go home. So it may not be that they're wanting to travel every day, but they want to be able to get home on uh, Good Friday and back on Easter Monday. And also this year uh, of all years, with the cost of petrol being so high for many families, actually, you know, the, the railway may be longer and, and more of an inconvenience, but a cheaper way to travel uh, on, on using off-peak fares and, and rail cards and so on than it is is to drive. So I, I, share, I share your frustration uh, very much there and have, have asked why it is done. As I say, their answer is very much that it, it's the time where it causes the least disruption to the, to the fewest number of passengers. Yeah, I suppose so. Any hopes that some of these uh, delays will ease over the course of the next few days? Um, I think the next few days is probably optimistic. Next Saturday, again, is a very busy getaway period for people getting away for that second week of the Easter school holidays. Uh, my advice would be if you are traveling uh, this week, get there very uh, get there early. If you are traveling next weekend, Saturday or Sunday, I would say get there extremely early to the airport because the last thing you want to be doing is uh, having a major stress in a long security line um, because you're going to miss your flight because the airport doesn't have enough staff. I mean, it's just incredible, isn't it? I mean, if only something would work in this country well, then I would be happy. I, for one, would sing from the rooftops and point everybody in that direction. But, Ben, this is great to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Ben Clapworthy, travel correspondent with The Times. I mean, it's hard to believe, isn't it? So, nine-hour queues at Dover, four- to five-hour queues at Heathrow, 222 planes cancelled by EasyJet, BA putting prices up deliberately so you don't book a flight with them, but also cancelling over 100 flights anyway. The railway's basically shutting down for Easter. 
I mean, is it any wonder that we all drive cars? Is it any wonder that when people think about where they're going to go, they think, is it really worth it? Is it really worth the hassle? Is it really worth the money? The answer, I'm afraid, for a lot of people is it's not. The thing is, it's more expensive now to stay home than it is to go away. So what are we supposed to do? Answers on a postcard, please, but don't post it here because that will never get anywhere either. 0344 499 1000. Welcome to Britain. This is Talk Radio. Quick talk, fast talk, street talk, talk radio. The independent republic of Mike Graham. Radio you can believe in. Mike Graham. Speaking common sense unto the nation. On talk radio. Good morning and welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. It's a very cold and miserably wet Monday, I'm afraid. We may be the home of common sense, but there's not much we can do to control the weather. And I'm afraid I've got news for the Just Stop Oil Brigade. They can't control the weather either. I imagine there's not too many of them out there demonstrating on the roads this morning. A bit too wet for them, isn't it? Some of them were chaining themselves to things, gluing themselves to things over the course of the weekend. Uh, one of them even managed to glue himself to a microphone uh, at a radio station not a million miles away from here. Lucky to try it in my studio. Uh, he'd still be uh, walking with a limp, I think, if that was the case. But anyway, uh, enough of that sort of talk. Here's what we're going to do next. We're going to talk to Peter Hitchens because not just do we need to talk about that rather bizarre video which Boris Johnson has just put out. Uh, if he hasn't seen it, we'll play it back to him once more time. Uh, I was saying, the music sounds a bit like Schindler's List. They've also tried to get some kind of Ukrainian sort of violin strings thing going on there. Uh, but I've got Jim saying it sounds more like the Lion King to me. Uh, something very strange going on. Why would Boris Johnson make a sort of propaganda video uh, on behalf of Ukraine? Seems a bit of a strange thing to do. I presume he's taking advice from his diplomatic service and maybe even from the military. It doesn't sound like a great way not to provoke Vladimir Putin even more. Peter Hitchens will also talk about a new book that he's written about grammar schools. Uh, he's uh, horrified, as I was, to see that 35% of children uh, in Key Stage 2 did not achieve or attain the necessary level of education in reading, writing and arithmetic. The three R's, as they used to be known. There's something very wrong. And there's a connection as well, by the way, between all of that bad education and the way that these demonstrators are behaving. They've been generally terrified over the course of their schooling by teachers telling them the world will indeed end if they don't do something about it. It's bizarre, isn't it? 0344 499 1000 is the number. We'll take your calls, of course, as well. 0344 499 1000 coming up later on. Peter Hitchens up next. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Time to say a very good morning to Peter Hitchens. Peter, how are you doing? Morning. Before we get into the Russian stroke Ukraine scenario. I don't know whether you've seen that Boris Johnson video this morning, have you? I'm, I regret to say I haven't. Oh, OK. Well, I'll yeah, tell you what, can we play it to him? Could we play it again in a way that he could see it? Is that possible? Are you guys ready for it? Not yet. OK, we'll come back to that. Let's talk a bit about the uh, your education story that you put in your column this morning. Um, yeah. and we'll come back to Boris Johnson. Uh, you, like me, uh, a big a big fan of grammar schools. I went to one. Um, I, I presume you probably did as well. Um, no, no, I was I was partly privately educated. Oh, OK. Well, then, <laughs> then you should hang your head in shame. But never mind. Well, I don't think so. But I, no, I I'm don't joking. Th- no, no, but I mean, I think it's perfectly... I am actually against private education in general, the buying of privilege. I don't see how you can stop it. I don't blame my parents for trying to get it. Uh, though, in fact, it was probably unnecessary in, 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 my, in my childhood for them to spend the money they did spend. I, but in general, I think if you had a proper 
a proper state education system, then private schools would shrink. Yes. No, listen, whenever, whenever I have the debate, and I haven't had it for a while, actually, because I generally don't think private schools should exist. A lot of people say to me, who are very ordinary working people, they say, yeah, but our schools are so awful where we live that we have to pay to put our children into school, otherwise they'd, they wouldn't get a decent education at all. That's true. You know, which is a terrible indictment. But you were talking about the, the, the white paper that came out um, today, or last yeah, week, rather. Last um, week. In, in which only 65% of uh, key stage two pupils managed to attain a level which you would think would be just an average level, really. Well, I don't know. I, my, my, my guess would be it's a pretty low level. I, I, my, if, you, if you ask most uh, English primary schools this, these two simple questions... Do you get the children to chant their times tables or uh, do you use exclusively uh, the only effective reading teaching methods, synthetic phonics, when teaching your children to read? You will not get a direct answer. Uh, the, the head of the school will say something like, oh, well, we test them in their times tables uh, or they will say, oh, there are some that do it, but very few. Or they will say, we'll use a mixture of methods to teach children to read. These are just examples, the simple things that children need to know before they can set out on secondary education, how to read, write and count, are not actually being effectively taught, despite the fact that we know how to do it. Uh, because I think teachers and educationists in general despise proper teaching as authoritarian and won't do it. Mm. And that's one of the reasons. But the other reason for it is that the, the primary schools used to be under great pressure in the days when we had selection by ability at the age of 11 to actually make sure that their pupils were able to take the fairly straightforward test, uh, which existed at that time, the 11 plus. Mm. And which the, I the test, test bar is much maligned now, and there were many faults in it, and its, it's, it's inventor, uh, Cyril Burt, has been discredited in many ways. But the fact was it was an effort to try and overcome class prejudice in selecting people for, for good state schools and to make sure that people who came from poor backgrounds were not discriminated against. So I think we should be careful to, 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 to about dissing it entirely. I think I would replace it with something else mm. myself, but the, to just remember that. And the, the thing is that as a result of the grammar schools being trashed by both Labour and Conservative governments in the 1960s and 1970s, that pressure on primary schools uh, was removed. And at the same time, all kinds of fads and, and modes in education came in. Uh, the, the, the whole idea of teaching children in rows uh, to learn things went out. Mm. And as a result, people come to secondary school, in many cases, quite unable to benefit from it because they can't read or write or count properly and they, they haven't been taught basic knowledge. And this is the real problem with our education system. Of course, this produces, at all levels, people who emerge eventually from schools and then universities who aren't able to do their jobs. We have a much lower level of competence mm. in, in, in areas where people need to be highly qualified than we used to. And I, the point that I made last week was we had yet another NHS scandal last week about maternity care. Yeah. But there have been plenty of others. And every time these scandals come up, somebody goes on television and says, this must never be allowed to happen again. Yes. And you know, as they say it, it will happen again, that you'll be reading about it or something very yeah. similar in about 18 months. It keeps on happening for the very simple reason we simply aren't capable of educating people properly anymore and as a result our levels of competence are lower we are not a third world country yet but we're certainly not a first world country and anymore. i think that leads into my next sort of question really because i listened to an interview last week with an educator i think it was a union representative who basically didn't want to blame anyone apart from the tory government 
rather than yeah. sort of looking at the way the teaching um, curriculum was structured, rather than looking at what teachers individually did, and not even including, he didn't want to blame parents either, because I think some parents surely have to bear some brunt of a well, situation. Should, if, I mean, if, if, if your child cannot read properly and you're their parent, surely you have to take some blame for that. Well, we don't live in a, in a culture of reading anymore. Uh, and it's not, this is not just uh, the people in, 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 in really, really bad circumstances. The, the idea that people should read for pleasure is dying out in our society. Mm. I recently got a royalty statement from my publisher. And th- I think it's now the majority of, the, of, of my books which are sold are sold as audiobooks. Right. And I think this is because people, even people who've been through university, don't find that they, that, that they enjoy uh, the, the acts of reading and fluent reading as a thing which people simply do is dying out in our society. Well, uh, maybe that's inevitable and, and this is what we have to do about it. But I personally think it's a, it's a major skill, especially if you want to do any kind of research. Uh, you're going to have to read. People aren't going to obligingly record it for you on, 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 an, on an audio. No. Uh, and and this, this will therefore be inaccessible to you. Already huge amounts of knowledge are inaccessible uh, because they're not on the web. And if you don't have access to the, the increasingly hard to get into libraries where this stuff is stored, you'll never be able to find out what happened mm. before about 1993. No. And that's the trouble, isn't it? Because with all of that and the additional kind of things that are being taught in schools, like I say, you know, I, I take a great connection between some of these, you know, just stop oil people, many of whom are between the ages of sort of 16 and 24, who have been told for their entire lives in school that the world is dying and we will all die and the, the, the species will die um, unless we stop using fossil fuels. They actually believe it. Well, yeah, and this is a, it's a, it's a legitimate point of view. I don't agree with it. I, I think that it should be debated, but I think what's happened to schools is that they have increasingly become engines of propaganda. Uh, the, the children are, are, are taught what to think, as I repeatedly say, not how to think. Mm. And there's an awful lot of this goes on and it's very hard to measure. Uh, and it's very hard to discover what's going on because who, if, if there are very few instances where independent observers can actually get into schools at no notice at all, go into classes, find out what's going on. There were a couple of attempts to do so uh, by a television station a few years ago, yeah. and uh, which involved, I think, teachers taking part in this. And the teachers were disciplined. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. 
from ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Uh, for actually filming what was going on in their classes, which was largely just disorder. Yeah. But I, I get letters from people saying that they're, they're when, when their teachers have found out that their, their children have been reading the Mail on Sunday and the Daily Mail, uh, they're, they're held up as bad examples yeah. and told that their parents are, uh, are reading the wrong newspapers. There is an awful lot of left-wing orthodoxy in schools, and as we know all the time, because this does come out, in our universities as well. And it, it's, it's a serious point. It's amazing that, that, they can, that they can teach people what to think about the, about the planet, but they can't teach them what seven nines are. Well, that's what I find extraordinary and rather sort of sinister in a way, because rather like your descriptions of, of the Blairites and their kind of deconstruction of the establishment and the, the, the rebuilding of a new establishment, as it were, in their image. Um, this is all about reworking the minds, it seems to me, of a population. Well, yes, it is. And the, 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 the idea of, of getting rid of the grammar schools and bringing in a comprehensive system was driven very much by dogma and ideology, by people who believed you could create a utopian equal society by doing so. Mm. They were, of course, hopelessly wrong, because one of the things which has happened as a result of the crushing of the grammar schools is that education is far more unequal than it was in the middle 1950s. The, the best state schools, and they're not, in my view, very good, but let's, let's accept that they're the best, the best comprehensive schools and the, the Sutton Trust and Teach First have done research on this, it's not just me saying it, are socially exclusive. That is to say they have very low proportions of, of children on the general measures of policy. Mm. And the, the, we all know why this is, because of the catchment area trick and also because, because of people who suddenly discover religious belief around about the time they're getting their children into secondary school. Yeah. So this is, this is a, the, we have, people say, well, you want to go back to selection in education. I say, we have selection education what we have is rigid irreversible selection by wealth instead of actually a far from rigid and an often modifiable selection by ability which in my view was much better yes i think so um we're going to take a little break uh, shortly peter but before that let me play you this uh, boris johnson video that's okay. just come out and because i want your views on it after we come back but have a, have a watch and uh, listen to this from the moment the russian invasion began and troops and tanks burst across their frontier. Ukrainians have defended their homeland with invincible courage and tenacity, and we in Britain are lost in admiration for their valour and patriotism. Our job is to do everything we can to support them. Back in 2015, seven years before this invasion, we sent a military mission called Operation Orbital to strengthen Ukraine's armed forces. And by the time Vladimir Putin launched his latest onslaught, Britain had trained over 22,000 Ukrainian soldiers. In January, when we feared this invasion was coming, we sent our Ukrainian friends 2,000 anti-tank missiles, and we've kept up the supply ever since, intensifying, dispatching thousands of weapons to help Ukrainians defend themselves. We're sending Star Street missiles to protect against air attack, javelins, and lords to defend 
against Russian tanks. And we're supplying body armor and helmets for Ukraine's soldiers. Just as important is humanitarian and economic aid, and Britain is providing £400 million of support, including 500 mobile generators designed to allow hospitals and other essential facilities to keep going, even if the invader cuts off their power supply. Meanwhile, here at home, 150,000 people across the UK have offered to take in Ukrainians, and the government has established a special scheme to allow Ukrainians to join relations here in the UK or extend their current stay. All the tanks and guns in Vladimir Putin's arsenal will never break the spirit of Ukraine's people or conquer their homeland. Britain will never waver from supporting our friends. And I have not the slightest doubt that when this time of agony is over, Ukraine will rise again and take her place once more among free and sovereign nations. All that's missing at the end is this message brought to you by Halliburton, PLC. Um, we'll get Peter Hitchens' views on that coming next on Talk Radio. Talk Radio. Radio where you can let off some steam. Reason. Re-engineer. We think what you think. Smart speaker. Smart TV. Deadly accurate debate. Talk first. Talk fast. Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. We're talking to Peter Hitchens, man on Sunday columnist, of course, author as well. We've been talking about education, but just before the break there, uh, I played Peter uh, a video which has just been issued by Boris Johnson on his Twitter account. Uh, rather well produced, rather polished, you might say. Peter, what did you make of it? Well, I was trying to think of any precedent for it. Uh, for instance, like you, no doubt, I remember the Falklands War of yeah. 40 years ago. Uh, when the issue was extraordinarily simple, and that is to say a piece of British territory on the far side of the world had been invaded by a fascist junta mm. uh, without any conceivable excuse or legality, and uh, our Navy and, uh, and other armed forces were busily taking it back. And I, I don't remember, I have to say, uh, Mrs. Thatcher making a, a video about it. And my problem with all of this is that it, it's short on explanation as to what British interests are in this conflict mm. and and why we are so profoundly involved in, in, in the supply of weapons and why we would feel that, which I, the video correctly points out, of course, that the weapons were supplied uh, before the Russian invasion. Uh, and that is a, in itself interesting. Those are my initial thoughts on it. Mm. But I, I can't think of any other instance of a, of a British prime minister making such a film. Uh, or doing actually anything comparable to that in, in, in any conflict, in, even in ones where uh, we were far more directly involved. Mm. No attempt was made by any British Prime Minister to offer any uh, filmed explanations as to why we were in Northern Ireland, for instance. No. Uh, I mean, we I suppose we did. For a very, very long time. Uh, and I, it, it, what is, why is the Ukraine war so important to the British government? And my view, as you probably know, is that this is really a war between between mm. the United States of America yes. and Russia, uh, in which Ukraine is being used as a battering ram by both the United States and Russia now. Uh, and the, my, I, I wish it could be stopped as a war because I see nothing but suffering and misery and death and, 
and torture and horror ahead for the actual people of Ukraine. And who, who would wish that on them? And I, I'm, I remain, I, I, I stand here amazed. All, all my young life, the world was full of conflicts. And it, it immediately they began, the General Secretary of the United Nations uh, would announce an attempt to mediate and bring peace about. I had seen no sign mm. of any serious attempt uh, to pressure either side into, it, 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 into, into making a, a peace agreement which would spare uh, the poor people of Ukraine from any further suffering from being turned out of their homes uh, or being blown to bits. And I, I think that it, it's just, it's, it's very odd uh, to witness a war. This, a major war between heavily armed uh, armies in, in Europe and no serious United Nations intervention to bring an end Yeah, it does seem odd. I mean, we do live in a very media-driven, social media in particular, driven age. Short videos are the thing. You know, we get told that all the time um, in our business, you know, that people like to watch a short video. They won't watch a long two-hour interview, uh, which, as, which feeds more into what you were saying earlier well, about the education of, of our... Of that's our... OK. But, by the way, can I just, just interject yeah. something here? Because I, I need to say it on, on every occasion when I speak about this. I utterly condemn as barbaric, lawless and disgusting the Russian invasion in Ukraine. I have to say that because after this, this interview between you and me is over, people will go onto social media and claim that I am here defending uh, Vladimir Putin yes. or, or justifying the Russian invasion. These lies and smears are now an actual integral part of British politics. Yeah. Any dissent on this issue yeah. uh, is immediately subjected to misrepresentation and falsehood. And so I have to say this in explicit terms. I condemn this invasion. I'm totally against it. I think it is stupid, wrong, barbaric, and, and absolutely unjustifiable and with, without any, yeah. any sort of, of defence to it. So I just need to make yes, that clear you on do. the record. And, and, very, and very well said. And I know that. And I would never doubt that about you, Peter. But here's the thing. Uh, you don't have to wait till the end of the interview. But it's already started. You know, I've already been accused of playing Boris's uh, video to you in order to bash Boris rather than to bash the cause of the invasion, which is Vladimir Putin. Clearly wrong. It's entirely within my brain cell uh, capacity to be critical of Boris Johnson for making a video like that while still condemning Vladimir Putin. Some people seem to think that's an impossible position to hold. But we increasingly live in, in the sleep of reason monsters are born. Uh, we increasingly live in a country in which free speech, although technically permitted, uh, is punished uh, in various ways and act actively disapproved. I there were people last night calling for me to be to be charged and imprisoned mm. simply for dissenting from the general line about this. It, we are now in a society in which, in which people are happy to say openly that they do not believe in free speech and they think that people who disagree with them should be locked mm. up. It's very dangerous. War hysteria in 1914 destroyed pretty much the civilized world for, for two generations. And, and did a grave damage to, to personal liberty as well, I might add. Mm. If we have another bout of that, then I don't think there'll be much left. Well, there was a very interesting uh, debate going on on Twitter yesterday, not including me, but just something I was watching, between two people, one of whom who said, I stand with Ukraine in his, in his bio, but insisted on referring to the Falklands as the Malvinas, uh, and insisting that yes, the British right. people who live there had no business at all wanting to be able to preordain their existence. And his, 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 uh, his, his opposition was pointing out the irony of that. <laughs> well, yes, quite. But I think you'll find that this is, this is astonishing. This is a left-wing war. The people who, back in the 1980s, were profoundly against NATO, who, who wanted the West to disarm, get rid of its nuclear weapons, and generally give in to, to Soviet pressure, 
Uh, they're inheritors. In some cases, I would think the same people are now fanatics for NATO. Uh, and it, it, although they were quite ready to make compromises and disarm in the face of communist Soviet power, uh, they're bitterly opposed to a non-communist Russia. It's a very fascinating development and, 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 and an evolution of people. And I think we have to understand the left now likes war. Uh, whereas in, in in all my youth and young manhood, the left was against war. The left now likes utopian war that's supposedly going to improve the world. I very much doubt whether this war in Ukraine is going to improve the world. Horrible things are already happening, as we know, uh, and they will yeah. continue to happen because if, if you don't if you don't like atrocities, my advice is always don't start, condone, provoke, or in any way make it more likely there's going to be any wars. Mm. Uh, because if you have a war, you will have atrocities in it uh, and they will be committed, I'm sorry to say, by both sides. And to use atrocities, therefore, as an argument in, in, in favor of your position on the war is not is, is not intelligent. Uh, war is hell. Uh, the best thing to do when it starts is to try to stop it. Mm. Where, where is the pressure? I keep saying, where yeah. is the pressure to well. bring it to an end? There seems to be none, and as you said in your column this week, you know you you, you wouldn't be at all surprised at the the idea uh, that it's a good thing for the West and certainly for the U.S. and for Britain to prolong the war in order for Putin to run out of money, stroke ammunition, stroke support. Well, I, I quoted fascinating quotation from from Fraser Nelson's column in the Telegraph on Friday, which he, he quoted as senior diplomat. Now, Fraser is very well informed, mm. has contacts at very high levels, and columns of his kind have a purpose in journalism to. To, to allow the, the, the well-informed to speak to each other, more or less over the heads of everybody else. I mm. promise you that that quote did not appear there by accident. And what it basically said was that the, the, the United States would not be sorry if this became a long war in which Russia was, was bled dry economically. And that is that, I think, may well be what is going on. But there has been for many, many years a faction in, in Washington, D.C., which has felt that the, one of the main aims of American foreign policy should be to prevent any kind of resurgence of any sort of power in Russia. And this is, it seems to me, a continuation of that. And it was probably uh, made worse by the Russian intervention in Syria, which infuriated a lot of people in Washington, D.C. Yeah. And I think they decided that this was the point at which they were going to, they were going to take action. Uh, it's since then that everything has gone really bad. But it, it's, what is the British stake in this? Shouldn't we desire peace in Europe? Well, you would have thought. Uh, isn't it? Isn't it? Isn't, isn't, isn't it part of our purpose as a civilized nation to seek to, to seek peace? What do we gain from mm. from death and destruction in Ukraine? Quite a good question. One final word, just uh, Peter, on the on the upside of people listening to you and enjoying it. Chris Evans um, last week on Virgin Radio Breakfast picked up our conversation on the changing of the clocks. And was very firmly encouraged to be on your side of the argument and 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 spread that word um, very far and wide. So uh, so thank well, you. For that. On that particular Monday morning, I think a lot of people wonder why <laughs> on earth they had to get up an hour early, uh, but it fades away and they forget it till next time. Yes, I know. Very much like childbirth. Peter Hitchens, thank you very much again. Peter Hitchens, man on Sunday column, was there speaking about the Boris Johnson video, the war in Ukraine, uh, the atrocities, and of course the demolition here in this country, of grammar schools. Let's get some conversation going. Let's have some calls. 0344 499 1000 uh, is the number. It's home and common sense. Let's get some news headlines. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Listen on DAB+. Watch it live on your smart TV. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Talk Radio.
Welcome back to the Independent Republican, Mike Graham, right here on Talk Radio. It is the home of common sense, the place you get the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. I often get criticised by people who say, oh, but you never let them have the other side, you never hear from the other side. Well, we're here from all the sides here uh, on Talk Radio. It's what we do. We do it every day. Uh, I know what I'm doing. Uh, some of you may not listen to everything that I do, in which case uh, you might make the mistake of thinking that we don't cover all of it, but we do. So please, just listen all the time, uh, and you will be in no doubt whatsoever. You can also watch it, of course, on Apple TV, Rakuten, Samsung TV Plus, Roku, YouTube, now on Amazon Fire TV. And uh, with the advent of Talk TV coming, it's going to be a very exciting month here uh, at Talk Towers. Uh, just go to the talkradio.tv page, uh, go to the App Store and download the Talk Radio TV app, and you can watch us all uh, in full blazing colour. Of course, Ian Collins coming up uh, from one o'clock. We'll be talking to him coming up very shortly as well. We're going to take some of your calls, but before that, let's talk to Rob Clark, former Army officer, uh, now research fellow at Civitas, um, because there's been some terrible footage overnight. Uh, coming in from Ukraine. Um, clearly, uh, war crimes being committed, atrocities uh, all over the place, mass graves, people being executed, it would seem, at point-blank range with their hands tied behind their backs. Rob, a very good morning to you. Welcome. Oh, morning, Mike. How are you? Yeah, very well. Thanks very much for joining us. I mean, you've seen your share of uh, military action in Afghanistan and elsewhere. Um, it's pretty clear what's going on here, isn't it? I mean, the evidence is mounting now increasingly uh, by the day. I think the worrying thing is um, it's not just in, in Butcher, for example. I think it's going to be replicated across uh, virtually every area where Russia now is forced to withdraw from, uh, having not achieved any of their tactical uh, objectives. Uh, and now they're pulling most of their forces into the east, into the Donbass over the coming weeks. Um, I think this is going to be a really worrying pattern where, like I say, only in Butcher, we've got around uh, several dozen uh, very likely confirmed cases of uh, summary executions on civilians. We can replicate that now across, um, you know, many other uh, um, areas that have been under Russian control. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in terms of the way that Russia has, has sort of executed, if you like, for want of a better word, this um, military strategy that they've had, do you see it changing now? I mean, we're told that they're withdrawing from certain areas. Is this something that you would expect to see in terms of the way that they do things? Yes, I mean, in terms of having to withdraw, ironically enough, the withdrawal from uh, around Kyiv uh, back into Chernobyl and Belarus, ironically, that's probably the most tactically sound uh, operation they've conducted. It's been relatively successful from a Russian perspective, um, maintaining sort of force integrity and cohesion uh, whilst defending against Ukrainian counterattacks. But in terms of pulling back their troops uh, and repositioning back now into, into the Donbass and, uh, and increasingly into the south around Mariupol, which is still under siege, um, we can expect this almost this lull across Ukraine uh, for the next week or so. Um, but like I said, the worrying thing is now when uh, Ukrainian forces manage to recapture territory, we're going to be seeing these uh, absolutely abhorrent war crimes uh, and, uh, you know, genocide. I, this is it's really important to note to distinguish. This is something that's happening like in, in Europe, in Europe in 2022. Mm. Um, you know, we all thought we'd, um, you know, left this behind with uh, obviously the, the, the Bosnian genocide in the early 90s and the mid 90s. Uh, but to still get this now from uh, from from the Russian military is absolutely, absolutely outrageous. Yeah, it's incredibly difficult, of course, to, for people to see and to look at um, because it's hard to understand how those kinds of things can happen. Um, the Russians, of course, are saying that they didn't do it. Uh, they're saying that it was the work of uh, uh, Ukrainian sort of, um, uh, I don't know, mil militias. Um, I mean, there's no real way that that could be, that could be true, right? 
No, um, as with everything in this conflict, the, 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 the fog of war and the uncertainty remains paramount. However, um, you know, we've got independent uh, Times journalists, we've got BBC on the ground who have, uh, you know, they verified these versions and these accounts. Yeah. And it fits in with the Russian narrative. Um, some of your viewers may not be aware, but I'd, I'd suggest just going online and checking, there's, a, there's an article that got released by the state news agency, RAI Novosti, uh, over the weekend. And it basically talked about the denazification of the swamp of Ukrainian society. This isn't an attack against the Ukrainian political elite or the Ukrainian military, but Ukrainian civilians themselves. Um, and it involves this almost this de-Ukrainianization, this denazification, these very ugly terms, uh, which basically legitimizes to the Russian population the, the idea of a Ukrainian genocide, I'm afraid. Yes. I mean, we were just talking to Peter Hitchens about the lack of any kind of formal peace talks and the, the lack of any urging for formal peace talks from either the UN or the UK or indeed the US or indeed even um, the European Union. We're going to talk about uh, President Macron a little bit later on. I mean, he's been trying to broker peace talks with Putin, but failing miserably. I mean, what chance is there that any of these um, Russian generals or Russian individuals will be taken before The Hague in the same way that some of the Bosnian generals were? Well, I mean, we can see just how long and drawn out of a process that was. Um, you know, some of them were still only being uh, uh, sort of being routed in the last few years. But it's absolutely crucial that uh, all and uh, every sort of shred of evidence, any sort of uh, account can be taken, verified uh, and be used after this in, in prosecution. Uh, obviously, the difficulty will be bringing uh, Russian military leaders and Russian politicians to justice. Um, but in terms of um, ensuring now that the, the, the systems are in place, the frameworks are in place, this is incredibly important. And this is one of the key differences between now and, uh, and 20 or 30 years ago in, in, in Bosnia, for example, is the, um, the, the, widespread, the widespread knowledge that this is happening through things like social media, through things like news. Um, and these accounts can be taken now. Um, there's a lot of access in Ukraine still for, for Western agencies, human rights watcher on the ground. So the time is really now to sort of collect as much evidence as possible. Mm. So when the time comes, these individuals can absolutely be held to account. They can be held to account, but can they be arrested, though? Because that proves difficult, doesn't it? I mean, we saw uh, with Radovan Karadzic and Slobodan Milosevic back in the days of the, the Serbian warfare uh, in Sarajevo. Um, that took a very long time. And in fact, I think they discovered um, uh, Karadzic completely in a disguise living and working in some Western European town, I think. No, I mean, so this is a really important question. Um, in terms of bringing Russian individuals to bear uh, after this is over, uh, really, this is going to have to be, we're going to have to consider, for example, the sanctions regimes which have been in place. Now, quite understandably, for economical, uh, economic reasons, a lot of Western leaders have said that, you know, the moment there is a ceasefire or the moment that Russian troops withdraw, then sanctions should be eased. However, this is not the case at all. We should continue to apply sanctions and put pressure on the Russian political system to bring these individuals to account. And also the big question is what Russia will look like after this uh, domestically, politically, uh, post-President Putin, for example, whether this is actually the end of Putin and whether a more uh, you know, manageable regime comes to power in Moscow mm. and then the negotiations take place regarding uh, these war crimes that can be held to account with a new Russian regime. That's mm. obviously a hope. And what is being said in, in the sort of corridors of power in the Ministry of Defence? Are they confident that the Ukrainian uh, forces are able to, with, uh, to withstand this attack? So in terms of the Ukrainian forces, um, they keep defying the odds in terms of uh, operationally and, and, and tactically. And you really, it, it highlights so much the sort of the, the fighting power and the morale that is absolutely key in this. 
Um, being in defence, they have a natural advantage over uh, over the aggressors. However, now we can all we can also see the Ukrainians, uh, you know, taking ground and uh, uh, conducting quite complex counterattacks. In terms of the hardware that still needs to be sent to uh, Ukraine, I think only today or yesterday, Australia have announced they're going to send several armoured vehicles. So we're talking about more significant um, military hardware to help the Ukrainians. Um, in terms of in the MOD, there's a lot of um, behind the scenes help in terms of like, the, the intelligence picture, trying to assist the Ukrainians with the intelligence. Um, obviously, British and American intelligence is, is the best in the world. Um, and this really is having a, a, a tangible effect on the ground for the Ukrainians. Yeah, absolutely right. Good to talk to you, Rob. Thanks very much indeed. Rob Clark, their former army officer and now research fellow at Civitas. We've got lots of you who want to get on and talk about a whole variety of different things. Uh, we've got a few tweets here as well to read out. Mike, listening to Mr Hitchens, do you think uh, the mainstream media, education, schools and universities are trying to do what they did to Trump in the States, i.e. poison the electorate against them for the left to get in? Well, I think they're trying to. I mean, they don't manage to succeed politically, but they do. I mean, I've heard it said uh, by friends of mine whose kids are at school, uh, whose kids are told you shouldn't watch any media other than what's on the BBC. That's the only thing you should watch. And they tell them that there is a climate crisis. They tell them uh, to do projects on how to save the world and so they've started to believe it uh my just six-year-old grandson um says uh, susie goes to a small independent school he's already reading brilliantly and can read a book to his younger brother the lefty teachers who despise proper teaching will complain that independent schools give kids an unfair advantage yet the thought is there um and here's one from someone who doesn't give a name. And the Boris video is pathetic. Our weak NATO leaders allow continued atrocities. They can offer as much therapy as they like, but they are equally responsible. Well, I don't think they are. Uh, I wouldn't agree with that. Carl says, uh, hi, Mike. This government owes the public a lot in the way they have conducted themselves. Yes, they have made mistakes. You would expect that to a certain degree, but they should reward us by scrapping VAT in this cost of living crisis. We all deserve that. Well, we'll be talking about that. We'll also be talking about the war in Ukraine. And, of course, uh, we'll be talking about the energy problem too. 0344 499 1000. This is Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. With the self-appointed revolutionary of reason, Mike Graham. On Talk Radio. Good afternoon and welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. On a very cold and miserable wet Monday, the sky has kind of cleared slightly, so I'm rather hoping it might not be raining all day, because I really do hate the rain. It puts me in such a bad mood. Although, it's great to be back, of course, after a long weekend of uh, uh, fun and frolics and a bit of golf, a uh, bit of walking the dog, you know, a bit of family fun and entertainment, uh, a bit of bonding with my children. It's always good. Um, I must say, it always does regenerate me uh, and makes me feel alive again. It makes you also understand what the most important things in life are. And I'll tell you what I've found uh, is that the cost of fuel has somewhat stabilised. But I'll tell you what I've also found. Uh, I was talking to some people about maybe getting a new car. Because there's now such a disparity between the cost of diesel and petrol, I was always in favour of diesel, but now you're kind of leaning more towards petrol because diesel's about 20p more per litre in almost every petrol station you go to. I still don't really know why that is. Our next guest, Rupert Darwell, may be able uh, to explain and elucidate. Senior fellow of the Real Clear Foundation, author of Green Tyranny, of course, as well. Um, Meanwhile, um, if you're trying to go away on holiday... Bad luck, because there's gridlock at the ports, there's cancellations in the air, there's nine-hour queues at the airports, and soon the trains won't be running either. So it might be better if you just don't bother going anywhere at all. Although, as I've said earlier today, it'd actually be cheaper to go on holiday with your family and stay in some all-inclusive place uh, where you can get all the food you like, all the heating you like, uh, all the swimming you like, and you won't be paying through the nose like you would be back here. We've been talking about Ukraine, of course, as well. There is still a massive Russian 
uh, effect on the energy prices uh, and the energy supplies of this entire continent of Europe in which we live. Peter Hitchens had some interesting things to say about grammar schools. We've been talking as well about all manner of things to do with education. Uh, Coming up in this hour, we'll talk to our good friend Charles-Henri Gallois uh, about the situation with Emmanuel Macron, who was something like 36 points ahead of Marine Le Pen in the last election. Uh, He's now only five. You can read into that what you will. 0344 499 1000 is the number. This is Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. By the way, I should just tell you, I have no idea what this means, but Elon Musk has apparently just bought a large stake in Twitter. Uh, He's bought 9.2% of the company, which is worth almost $3 billion. It's pocket change to him, isn't it? Uh, He's made a filing with the US Securities and Exchange Commission. The announcement sent Twitter shares up more than 25%. Well... If he's put shares up by 25% and his stake is worth $3 billion, you do the maths, right? That means, um, does that not mean he's put a quarter of uh, the profits onto $3 billion, Which is, I don't know what, but if you call it a third, it's a billion. I'm going to go that way. So he's made almost a billion dollars just by buying some stock. That's the business to be in. Let's talk to Rupert Darwell. Rupert, very good uh, afternoon to you. Thank you very much for joining us. Um, There's a sort of row round we need to do today, really, just to sort of catch up with some of the news of the weekend. I see the Labour Party is now running away at 100 miles an hour from what seemed to be a suggestion that we might want to consider rationing petrol uh, and fuel of all kinds in order to make sure that we don't run out of it. I mean, that's not really very helpful, is it? Well, it's it's. Don't you get the feeling it's like back to the 70s? Yes. I mean, we are. This is the first big energy crisis since the the energy crises of the the, the 1970s. Yeah. You know, we had three day weeks and 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 so forth. And we're kind of we're we're reliving this exp- this experience that we thought we put well behind us. I mean, it really was quite an extraordinary time. I try to explain it to my kids, and they look at me with blank faces, like, "What do you mean you only had electricity for two hours a day?" But we did. You know, we literally had candles in most of the night. We had an hour in the morning to have breakfast because, of course, but you could get away with it now because you could just have avocado on bread instead of avocado on toast, I suppose. Um, (laughs) But, I mean, we're never going to run out of fuel, are we? There is plenty of energy in the world. What we're actually seeing is a colossal failure of energy policy. Mm. This is baked in from energy policy. And the really bad thing, Mike, is... Everything the government is contemplating doing will actually make it worse. Mm. That is the terrible situation we're in. They're not making it better. They're going to make it worse. But it seems to me as well, and we talk about this a lot on the show, as you can imagine, Rupert. I mean, it's it's been decades, really, since we had any kind of decent energy policy. You know, um, I never thought I would ever say perhaps we should consider renationalising it. Um, but I do wonder often whether that would be the thing to do. My worry about doing that, though, is who would you put in charge of it? Because we seem to have no one in this country who knows how to run anything. The, bit, the, the problem, you put your finger on, on a big problem. What, what we have is government, state control and private ownership. Yes. And that is a mix that simply doesn't work. Mm. You either have private sector finance and control and let the market uh, sort things out. Or you have, you go back to the days of nationalisation and you say, if we have public, the, the state controlling uh, what what uh, generator capacity should be built and so forth. The state should own 
those assets as well. And you go back to the days of the Central Electricity Generating Board. And that would be a lot more rational than the terrible, terrible mess we've got at mm, the moment. Right. I mean, the truth of the matter is hard to get to as well, because depending on who I talk to in the energy business, you know, either we do have enough renewables or we don't. Um, either we do need more wind farms on land or we don't. Either we do uh, need to start fracking or we don't. I mean, like everything now in the political sort of landscape, it's really hard to get to the truth. Well, it's hard to get to the truth because this is an orgy of lobbying mm. and vested interests. Yeah. That's what's being created. And um, there's a really in- interesting paper produced by Dieter Helm, who's one of the UK's leading energy experts, where he basically says the complexity of the system, which we just talked about, is manna from heaven for, for lobbyists mm. because they're the only people who can who get what they want from all this and and what you said well do we have enough wind not enough wind and so forth the the problem with wind power which is blindingly obvious is it doesn't matter how much wind power wind turbines you've got if there isn't any wind you don't get any juice it's as simple as that and we don't have any way of storing electricity, which is also a baffling thing to me, that given all of the technology that we've invested in and all of the inventions that we've made over the course of decades of technology, that we still haven't figured out a way to properly store electricity. Yeah, you can't. You, it, basically, you have to convert it in, into, into something else. You right. either convert it into chemical energy or the, the, the one thing that has always worked and still works and does make sense on, on grid scale is pump storage. Which yes. Basically, is you pump water up a, up a mountain and then you let it down. You, you release it uh, when you need more, more electricity. That yes. is really the only technology, grid scale technology that actually works. I mean, batteries you know, give you a, a matter of minutes and hours of, of electricity. And if you've had, if you've got no wind for weeks on end, you are completely stuffed if you're relying on right. batteries and wind power. But yet when we do have a lot of wind, we don't seem to have a surfeit of power from wind energy either. Well, the problem, when, when the wind blows, basically you've got, you actually have too much electricity. Uh, the, <laughs> the, the electricity system is kind of unique in that you... The moment electricity is produced, it must be consumed. It's a completely so you and as you say, you can't store it. So you go from feast to famine with 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 wind. Lots of wind, you've got too much electricity. The price falls, and it basically puts other generating capacity out of business. So the real problem we've got is not too much wind or too little wind. It's that we're not building the capacity needed to keep the lights on. And that is absolutely the government's fault. It is absolutely where quasi Kwarteng is is falling down. Because for the foreseeable future, to keep the lights on, we will have to be burning gas, Mm. natural gas. Yes. And so many people have gas boilers in this country. I think it's 25 million, uh, if that figure is correct. That you can't just suddenly get them all to change over to some other form uh, of energy to heat their home. Gas boilers are very efficient. They work terribly well. Uh, they're very modern, as far as I'm aware, if you've got a relatively new one. Um, you know, and, and they're, they're very efficient. They're very efficient at space heating. You're absolutely right. And the, the increase in, in gas prices is, is horrible in mm. terms of people's heating bills. And as you rightly point out, um, heat pumps are simply not as efficient. You may, They are really a, a second... You know, a very poor substitute technology for something that works very, very well. Yeah. And that is the problem. I mean, I'm looking at all sorts of uh, reasons to 
change over energy and none of them are convincing to me. The people that I've spoken to who have had heat pumps installed say the water's never as hot as it used to be, uh, the, the house is never as warm and the only way to keep it really warm is literally to never open a door or a window at any point ever. Um, I know people have got electric cars. There's a, a fellow broadcaster of mine who was po- posting his woes yesterday of trying to get from Beverly to Tunbridge. It took him 11 hours in an electric car because everywhere he stopped to charge his car, there was no space for his uh, car because other charge points were being used. And nobody's taken any of this into account. And we keep hearing, oh, we're going to build more charge points. But then where is all that electricity going to come from? Well, that's absolutely right. The thing that also people don't realise is your electricity uh, bill is subsidising the build out of charge points at motorway service areas. Yeah. So, and that's what, you know, they keep these things very, very quiet, but there's a massive, your electricity bill is basically being used as a piggy bank. Mm. Yes, and this is why I've been one of those calling for a reduction or, or doing away with altogether of the green subsidy, in addition to the to, to the VAT as well, because, but together, that could reduce people's bills by a significant amount, couldn't it? Well, it could do. I mean, what, what would then happen is you, you get the wind farm, uh, investors jumping up and down and saying that they're 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 being put out of business. Mm. So, I mean, so yes, if you want, the problem is that the government has designed a system where the consumer pays every way, and to, to, for, for financing all this stuff, which is highly highly inefficient. That's the problem. That the more wind power you put on, you actually have to have a parallel uh, generating capacity which you need to switch on mm. you need to keep it there ready and waiting for when the wind when when the wind dies down and it is inherently inefficient which mm. means people pay more right and given where we are and some people like to say we are where we are what would you suggest rupert in the short term to reduce people's actual bills because there's no sign of them going down anytime soon in fact it's likely to go up again in october isn't it we are in it's it's in a very difficult uh, situation because, as you say, there's this is this is a result of past policy fa- failures, and it will take it will take some years for those policy failures to be undone. But the problem we have, Mike, is the government's reaction is to make everything worse. Mm. I mean, that is to my I mean, fracking to me is the absolutely obvious one. I mean, where you've got quasi Kwarteng saying, well, I'm against fracking because it will have no impact on price. But the fact is, we will be burning gas to keep the lights on for the foreseeable future. And this guy saying natural gas is too expensive, so we should keep it in the ground. Mm. I mean, that is just breathtakingly stupid. It does seem to be. Why on earth would you want to rely, particularly now knowing what we know about some of the places where we get our gas from, um, why on earth would you want to rely on foreign um, countries to supply something which they could decide not to supply? It is absolutely unbelievable, breathtakingly stupid. And the government's argument is, oh, wind is a secure source of energy, which, of course, it isn't just because no. it's within your territorial waters or, it's, or you know, it's, you've got a wind farm next door. It doesn't mean it's a secure source of electricity, no. doesn't it? It's only as good as the weather and the weather is variable. It's, it's absolutely crazy. Yeah. And presumably, I wouldn't ask you in any way to try and get inside Boris Johnson's head because the flip flopping that goes around is quite remarkable. But I don't know whether he's in favour of onshore wind farms or not. It seems to depend on which day of the week it is. Well, who, who knows? I think what they do realise is that there is a political cost to having onshore 
onshore wind and they're, they're nervous about that. But what is really strange, Mike, and it, it, this is not to do with political calculation, but it shows how far off, how, how, how they haven't thought it through. They want more wind, but Boris wants to build six or seven nuclear power stations. Wind and nuclear do not mix. Right. It's a very, very, it's very simple because nuclear is, a, is, you have these huge nuclear power stations and the idea is you just keep them running. Right, you can't turn them on and off when the wind changes, right. and that's that's going to be Britain's energy future. It yeah. is completely mad, and also all these greenies, and in that I include these just stop oil maniacs. They don't seem to understand that we now have a world in which and a, and a world in which they inhabit, which needs more electricity, not less. I mean, it's all very well telling us you know you mustn't fly anywhere and you must get an electric car and you must stop using fossil fuels. But they've all got iPhones. They've all got, you know, clothes which are made with products made from oil. They've all, you know, they live a life which is subsidised to some extent or or enabled at the very least by the, the energy that we use from all sorts of places. Right. You can't just say, let's use less energy. You can't. This is a first, Mike. This is a first world indulgence. Yeah, it's, it's you know, people, p- people in developing countries, they want energy. Energy is the key to a better life for them and we have these people who as i say that it's utterly utterly indulgent and when people are finding you know two thousand quid uh electricity bills energy bills it is absolutely amazing we have these people who just want to make it more expensive mm. and only for those who can afford it and which will mean in the end that only the rich can afford to have a car only the rich can afford to travel anywhere and only the rich can afford to actually heat their home well, that's that that that, and all, and the rich also come off grid. They can take themselves off grid. They can have diesel gener- generators, I and mean, that's the sort of stuff that happens in places like California, where they've had blackouts. The rich put a diesel generator generator in their backyard. Mm. So, I mean, in terms of what could be done, um, my, I mean, where, where would you say what you are on on the windfall taxes front? I mean, I'm I'm uneasy about. Um, necessarily interfering too much with um, capitalist endeavour. However, um, they do seem to be taking the mickey, don't they? Well, this is a policy. This is policy driven. It's it's. To, uh, I think windfall taxes are generally a bad idea, and also they don't really deal with things like deficits because, by the nature, they're a one-off tax. Mm. And actually, we need to have investment in oil and gas production we need investment in fracking so we can and it's not just about it's not just about price as quasi quarteng says these this is this is about prosperity if you have um if you have fracking you have you'll be employing thousands of people on really good paying jobs and yeah. you yeah and you know for regions like the northwest it's fracking would be a boom you look at places in the us which have benefited frac from fracking like pennsylvania they've been quite economically depressed until fracking came yeah. along and completely transformed their economies right and it's perfectly safe isn't it the way it's done there people who are opposed to it here say oh it's not safe we're nobody sure what's going to happen well it is safe surely it is no it is it is safe i mean the, the, the safety thing is a is a bs thing that that what they're really what the anti-fracking crowd are really terrified of is that actually there's a lot of gas we've got a lot of natural gas in the in the shale formations and they're really they're really worried that it will be very successful that is that is that they are fundamentally against success and against prosperity Mm. and they do want to drag us back in the dark ages you know 
I've heard them saying on various interviews, I won't have them into, I won't interview these bozos because it's a waste of time. But, you know, when they sort of want to talk about taking us back to an age when, you know, life was simpler. Well, life was simpler in the 70s. We didn't have anything. You know, the biggest shop I saw was about the size of what's now currently a Sainsbury's Metro or a Tesco Metro. You know, we couldn't buy avocados off the shelf. You know, that was a luxury. You could only get those in a restaurant. You remember that. You know, I don't want to go back to the 70s, thanks. I quite agree. This is about making life more miserable. It's 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 dressed up. This the intellectual side of the green st- stuff is mm. dressed up as degrowth. What they say is we need degrowth, yeah. which is basically a permanent recession. Exactly. It's not for me, and it's obviously not for you, Rupert. Listen, we must talk again because you're obviously a man with some imbued with some great common sense. Uh, Rupert Darwell, there, senior fellow of the Real Clear Foundation, author of Green Tyranny. There is a green tyranny going on. I mean, some of this nonsense, these idiots who are going around trying to blockade oil terminals, don't they know that oil is the stuff of life for an awful lot of people? For an awful lot of people, they use it to heat their homes. For an awful lot of other people, they use it uh, to drive their cars. They have to drive cars because there's no trains. They have to drive cars because there's no buses. They say that we're not doing enough. Well, you know, what are you doing exactly, apart from sitting on the ground gluing yourself to a piece of tarmac, you plank? This is Talk Radio. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB, online, or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.